So I've been doing this series um, known as the Paramis or the Paramitas, which sounds very Spanish, doesn't it? Paramita. <laughs> but it's actually uh, Sanskrit. And it means the perfections. And uh, Enrique last week were talk, uh, and I were talking about the, that terminology, you know, the perfections. And I thought I'd give a little context to this group of teachings. They're known as the, the ten potomies or the ten perfections. And they're found within Mahayana and Theravadan Buddhism. Mahayana uh, is this kind of what's often known as the greater, the Maha is like a great or large vehicle. And uh, Theravadan is considered the path of the elders. So oftentimes it's talked about as the, the large vehicle and the uh, narrow or small vehicle. Sometimes they're talked about as boats, the large boat and the small boat, kind of how many people travel on these boats. But the, um, you know, my understanding of it, and I'm not super clear on uh, all of the Mahayana teachings, because I've primarily been focused in Theravadan Buddhism in my practice, although I've, you know, dabbled a little in the other arenas. But, you know, at first glance, this can all seem very masculine. Buddhas seem very masculine. Oftentimes, teachers and lineages are very masculine. We've even had at this center some debate about the setup, that this is a very masculine kind of setup versus the half circles, which gets more feminine. Um, and there's, so we've gone back and forth with that. So we try to be really conscious of that. And actually, in, upon further inspection, actually, um, Buddhism is neither masculine nor feminine. It is human. And in most centers, um, both of those binary genders are represented. Behind you is the uh, Kuan Yin, the goddess of compassion. Feminine kind of iconography of this very important aspect of Buddhism, which is compassion or loving kindness or heart practices. And then uh, the, the Buddha is actually known to represent both uh, masculine and feminine or wisdom and compassion. And that both are necessary. So in other centers, like at Spirit Rock, if you go to Spirit Rock, there is a, a statue of the Buddha, and then there's a statue of what's called Prajna Paramita, which is uh, a iconographic symbol of these ten perfections, feminized. For balance, Prajna Paramita... Uh, wasn't a, an actual being, but more uh, what's known as the uh, the part of the feminine quality that is needed to have 
a full expression of Buddhism. So I don't know why, that just kind of came into my mind today as I was talking about that, and then um, we were talking about, uh, Enrique and I were talking about perfections, and the word perfection, and how we're so like, just fucked up by that word, you know? And how we need to be perfect, and how there's so much like attention to this idea of like, achieving perfection in our culture. And I, I'm actually seeing it differently, and I think that so is, um, so is Enrique in, in our conversation and some other people too. Um, that it, what I understand that to mean is uh, qualities to be mastered, and that these ten qualities that we all have to varying degrees, in order to achieve the state of full awakening or complete freedom from suffering must be mastered. Which is kind of the case in most of the lists when there's like qualities, when there's talk about qualities, faculties, powers, all these kinds of things. You know, we all have to evaluate where we're at. Right? But they're given as... Um, I think in just about just about every religion, they're given as things to work toward, goals, if you will, attainments. Sometimes they call them, just like states of mind. You know, you come in, maybe your very first starting meditation, and you realize your mind's out of control, and you just want some peace and some ease. And yeah, don't we all? And then, you know, over time, you start to get some peace and some ease. And then the, oh, there's, oh, there's this other, like, oh, there's some tranquility that's underneath that. And then, oh, there's some really, really uh, blissful states that can be found. And then there's some, and then there's some, and it just keeps going. I once uh, heard Joseph Goldstein, who's been at this since, like, you know, before I was born, talking with another teacher I was at a teacher's conference and he was saying uh, that one teacher was like talking about having kind of you know gone, dropped down to another level of kind of meditative awareness and then that Joseph uh, who you know I'm not really sure how old he is 60s probably um, with this wide eyed childlike wonderment said yeah and I don't know where it ends, you know, just like this so curious as to what comes next. To me, that's like um, what in Zen they call beginner's mind, you know, like don't don't get too old. Don't get too knowledgeable that you can't be uh, amazed by what comes next, you know. I love that about children because they're just so, and then they, you know, you, you, they try to teach you something you've known for 30 years, but their, their wonderment, their astonishment in the mastery of something, it lightens the heart. So just to go through the list for those of you who um, haven't been here. 
And all of these talks are recorded, so uh, you can go online and hear the ones that we um, that we've already talked about. So they're not only uh, the Potteries are not only um, a list of qualities, but they're also thought to be uh, from easiest or less difficult to most difficult. Uh, and there might be some. Other, I mean, there's various ways to look at it. There, it also might uh, break down from uh, that one as you like, like, like this idea as you are working on the quality and mastering the quality of giving or dana or generosity. That uh, naturally you will begin to move into the next uh, potami, which is uh, virtue or morality. So. And I think of these, a lot of these as tenderizing the heart to the reality of things. You know? Sometimes you've got to beat the heart a little bit. Sometimes you sprinkle a little tenderizer on that. So the first is giving, um, or dana, generosity, which we hold very, uh, is a very strong foundation in this center. The center is run completely on the generosity of those who attend here. And there's a little bit of this kind of reciprocity and or kind of pay it forward mentality here. That this center only exists because of the people who have come here before and given so that we're still here. So uh, the second is virtue, or otherwise known as uh, blameless conduct. Morality. Really a cornerstone. Matter of fact, the Buddha was very clear to say, um, you know, if you can't meditate, don't even bother. Just practice generosity and living without harming people, and you'll be good. You know, like you'll be you'll be preparing your mind and heart for meditation, and uh, we're in this country we kind of get it backwards a little bit. You know, we come in raring to go for meditation and then hit the wall of our deeds and actions and memories and traumas and failings, all that. The voice of the eight-year-old. I didn't get enough, or whatever. So then, uh, the third is known as renunciation, or relinquishment. I gave a talk on that earlier. See, it's hard to just name them. I feel like I've got to kind of give a context to each of them. The uh, fourth is wisdom, or panya, which is kind of also encompasses uh, all of the ten. Prajna. In uh, Sanskrit, means wisdom. Panya, prajna, they're very similar but different. The fifth, uh, which was talked about last week, some, is energy or what's known as virya. Energy is something that uh, we need to cultivate. Very often when people first come to meditation or a meditation retreat, they realize just how lacking in energy they really are. 
because they're so they're exerting so much mental energy. We're kind of talking about here. It's physical energy too, but I think you know, same. The sixth is patience. The sixth uh, quality. And my favorite translation of patience, and uh, you know, Enrique talked last week about patience, and I giggled because he gave the driving analogy, right? Which is my least patient place, like ever. Doesn't even matter where I am. <laughs> so it's a good practice for me. But the one being, um, you know, patience, and the opposite of patience is impatience. And I heard uh, a, a teacher give that as a description of suffering and not and non-suffering or suffering and freedom from suffering uh, patience it would be considered not suffering and impatience as a matter of fact he gave the translation of dukkha meaning impatience which uh, made a lot of sense to me so this idea of if we can be patient or cultivate patience then we will suffer less. That's definitely uh, true for me. So, and then the things I'm hoping to focus on a little bit today are truthfulness, determination, and then possibly uh, some love and kindness towards the end. That brings us to equanimity. This idea of balance. So truthfulness, um, it's an interesting standalone piece because it's also found within the virtue. This idea of uh, not lying or uh, being wise with speech, having an integrity, not doing harm with speech, this kind of thing. So truthfulness from the uh, paramis has the the characteristic of non-deceptive speech. So it's this idea of kind of, you know, there's that way in which and actually, I just had lunch with my mom today, and it was really interesting because we have a dynamic that is about kind of, you know, manipulation slightly and uh, sarcasm and, you know, and it's just like, I mean, for me, it's like probably, you know, learned. I mean, my uncle, just about all my family is that way, and they're all from New York, and so I could always blame that. But... <laughs> But it was interesting to watch for myself, you know, as a practice. So this idea of um, truthfulness as uh, non-deceptive in speech and its um, its function is to verify in coordinates with the manifestation of excellence. So it's this idea back to kind of blamelessness, you know, and how freeing it is. I've had a few moments of blamelessness in my life. Quite literally moments. And it was so freeing. 
just there was this, and it's like when I see monks and nuns and people that I know that really live uh, every day, I see the lightness. And there's a, moving into the next quality, there's a determination to to go back to, to continue to do a little, just try to improve or do a little better around my conduct maybe. Which is this idea, that's where the falling, the, or the um, perfection piece comes from. My kind of resistance to it. Because uh, there's another teaching from the Buddha that I've uh, held on to for, like this nun said it years and years and years ago. I was really new in meditation. And there was this nun, I don't even know if she was from Canada, I don't even remember her name. And, um, but she gave this teaching that said, uh, Form by its very nature is imperfect. Form by its very nature is imperfect. And so it goes, as a lot of things do, there's a, there's a paradox in much of Buddhism. People get stuck. In their, but wait, that doesn't make sense. No, it doesn't. <laughs> you can't make sense of freedom from an, from a, uh, an abstract Perspective. You really have to be able to uh, have a subjective experience of what that means. And it's going to paradox because uh, just thinking, um, just thinking and talking doesn't, doesn't work. We have to get outside that paradigm. So this idea of form, but if you think about form by its very nature, it truly is imperfect. This body is totally imperfect. This society, imperfect. Maybe our uh, our ideals for the world, imperfect. The, 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 the globe itself, imperfect. So that so where does the this standard of perfection really live? Like where is it? Where can it be seen? I don't know. Again, what I think the Buddha was pointing to, striving for the internal, uh, this kind of uh, mastery of these qualities, but yet recognizing first that we are perfectly imperfect. Like Ajahn Chah gives this uh, example. Ajahn Chah is like a Thai forest master who's uh, responsible for bringing... uh, a lot of this this type of teaching Theravada Buddhism to the state because he began to teach Westerners. Anyway, he gives this example of like a teacup being already broken and accepting that it's already broken allows you to enjoy it all that much more and its functionality and its you know its essence, its its each use because it's going to be gone. And so in that way, I like this idea of kind of perfectly imperfect. But not as a like, I'm perfectly imperfect, so I don't need to do anything. Which might be my tendency. What does that have to do with truthfulness? This idea of kind of its manifestation is excellence. 
And actually, I think I like excellence better than perfection. Because I can be in this moment to the highest level of excellence that I can be and recognize and be truthful and honest when I fall short of that. And then in the next moment, again, another beautiful opportunity. I also um, find this truthfulness to have to do with wisdom and like seeing truth versus being delusioned or delusional or diluted with uh, false truth or with what we want to accept, like the idea that pleasure, physical, sensual pleasure actually brings you happiness. That's a delusion. But it's one we want to believe is truth until it fails again and again and again. And then we still want to believe that. One more piece of cake will give me the appropriate amount of pleasure needed to sustain me. Then there's this kind of deeper truth that I think is what all of uh, this meditative practice is about. This contemplative, meditative, experiential awareness of truth. Seeing it. Not turning away from it. Seeing the truth in suffering. Seeing the truth in the uh, potential for its release. And having that felt experience. The truth in the Four Noble Truths. The One of my favorite translations of the word Dharma uh, is truth in nature. It's just always wrong truth to me. It's always been... There was, there's always been like... A, I don't know. The reality of the way things are play themselves out in nature. Just not that long ago, I was um, up in a, I was in a forest up, up north and it was just so quiet. And where I was walking through this, you know, like kind of like Henry Cow, you know, like walking through like this kind of redwood grove and there's these ancient redwoods or a big basin, you know. And um, I just stopped. There was something that like just struck me. And I just sat for a while, and it was really. Uh, I the, the, I reflected on this thing, or somebody, this uh, quote or story. Somebody told me a long time ago, saying that um, the forests have been on retreat for thousands of years. <laughs> you know, and that if we can just kind of tap into that, which is really what we're kind of trying to do here, you know, uh, which I believe is why the Buddha and you know, the monastic tradition of at least the particular tradition that I've been following, what's called the, the forest tradition, uh, would retreat into the forest. 
for months or years, or you know, uh, Ajahn Pasano, one of the teachers at Abhayagiri, the uh, abbot of Abhayagiri, uh, goes for a month every year and sits in a cave in Thailand for a month. Just awesome. I went to the cave. I saw the cave. <laughs> he wasn't there at the time, but I was. There was someone else in that cave. It's like they're like. Um, these, they're these wandering monks that go off into the forest and they find like there's a cave and that every year there'll be, you know, different people will have their times in that cave. Or a hut. So there's that truth that, that can be found when we really look within. You know? I think that's this that's really what this is talking about. It's like, so it's not a, um, it's not a cognitive experience. We have to drop below the thinking mind. And I don't think that we get that so much here. You know, people are always asking me all these technical thinking questions and I just want to say, shut up. <laughs> not personally, you know, but... Because that's what I had to tell myself. Like, shut up. Because my mind was so busy figuring things out, assessing the situation, coming up with a possible solution. How can I get more of this and less of that? And da, 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 all the time. And I just... Um, that's why I was so tired when I started meditating. I would just be like, oh. You know? I love there's this Zen uh, quote. It says, stop, stop thinking and talking and there's nothing you can't know. And I think that's that truthfulness that's being pointed to here. Stop thinking and talking and there's nothing you can't know. It doesn't mean be an idiot. You know, it doesn't mean be an idiot. It means know when to disengage the cortex, the frontal cortex, the parietal lobe, and just be in your midbrain. Basically, just drop, quite literally, down a layer in your own brain. And you're good. The mammalian brain. It's why we're so capable of freedom. Because we have the ability to do that. Other animals don't. It's our birthright. From the Buddhist, uh, I don't know, perspective, from the Buddhist perspective, um, being born into a human realm a human body, is a gift. And the potential for awakening, we all have. And that that has something to do with our past karma. The fact that you, we, us, were born into this chaotic, overthinking, you know, uh, distorted by perfection, you know, Mindset and body and human experience is the gift. 
And so the Buddha is saying, use it. Hence, determination. So determination... The characteristic of of determination is determining upon the requisites of enlightenment, right? Its function is to overcome their opposites. Uh, Its manifestation is unshakableness in the task. So this idea of kind of coming back to like present moment, coming back again and again, the determination it takes to sit back on the cushion even though you're tired. Even though uh, it's been a long day, even though you ran the wharf to wharf, even though, you know, whatever. That's the kind of determination. Um, it's the kind of determination that the Buddha had when he took what's called the final seat. Uh, as the story goes, you know, I'm sure, you, sure you've heard the story, but the Buddha comes to this kind of um, final moment of really confronting the demons. And he did so with loving kindness and compassion and determination. And uh, so it's called taking the final seat. Meaning that um, after the Buddha had gone seven, eight years of... uh, Traveling around and studying with this teacher and mastering that quality and studying this, you know, uh, yoga and mastering that uh, style. He just went off on his own. And he sat down and looked directly at his mind and said, I will not move until I've overcome greed, hatred and delusion in my own mind. That's some serious determination. And that's what I think the uh, this quality is being talked about. The unshakableness. And it's also the this determination is the like it says, the requisite for enlightenment. So in some ways, like, I'm a huge failure at this. And in some ways, we all are. Because from the Buddhist perspective, right, if you really, really want to wake up in this life, give it all up. And dedicate yourself to practice. What else is there to do, right? Of course, there's so many things to do, right? But that's, on another level, what's being talked about here. So I was, um, okay, I was right. So I was, uh, at Wat Pananachat in Thailand. And I was, there was, there was this big gathering of all these monks, uh, these kind of higher, been like 20, 30 year monks. And I was talking, I was asking them about this because I was contemplating becoming a monk myself at the time. And I remember going and saying and asking that like I was really very humble and super intimidated and like asking like around this question of determination like 
does one really, you know, like, does one really need to become a monk or a nun in order to become enlightened? And so Ajahn, Ajahn Samedo, it was Ajahn Samedo, Ajahn Pasano, and Ajahn Amaro, and then some other Ajahn from England or something. Ajahn means like teacher, like they've been teachers for a long time. And Ajahn Samedo, who's this really big, like billowy, just very strong, looked down and he said, do you realize who you're asking this question to? <laughs> and I was like, all right. Because <laughs> he was, ba- that was the, the answer. I'm a monk. I've been a monk for 35 years, 40 years. Do you, do you realize who you're asking this question to? And I was like, oh. I talked later with Ajahn Pasano, and he, um, you know, he's a little more balanced in that way. <laughs> and he said to me in a really beautiful way, he said, you know, uh, there's different ways to work with this determination. But from the Theravadan perspective, you know, I mean, if enlightenment or arahantship is what you want, you're encouraged to give it all up and go into the forest. Live simply. Now, of course, what we're talking about here is what is enlightenment. There's a lot of different views of that. So, he also, and other teachers have also talked with me in my own experience, has been that there are lots of ways that we can increase our determination. Because again, this is, right, perfection, this kind of, how do you get out to perfection if you're just trying to sit 30 minutes a day? You know. Uh, One of, um, James Berez, I was on a long retreat once and I was having a lot of difficulty with my body and like not wanting to sit and like I was feeling just really like antsy and and, um, and he said, uh, be impeccable. When you walk into the hall, be impeccable. When you sit and from bell to bell, be impeccable. When you do walking meditation, be impeccable. And that is Determination. And that is that spirit of bringing this quality of determination. And then there's been other other ways that I've found, um, and something that I'll actually give to you as a challenge in the determination quality. At the end of each sit, there's three bells. When you hear it, stay. Don't go anywhere. Don't move. Don't shift. Don't be relieved because it's over. Stay. Until the end of the third bell. Just just that. Just that. I adopted that practice about ten years ago. I find it extremely helpful. Another, is, and this is more in the SN Goenka. Has anyone been to Goenka retreats? Yeah. yeah. So, strong determination sits uh, are something that they invite uh, at a right about the third or fourth day or something like that. 
right? When you're like not going to leave, when you've like re- you've like determined that you're going to stay, even though it's horrible, you're going to stay the rest of the time. No, I don't know. <laughs> that wasn't it. Wasn't actually my experience, but that some other people's talked about that. But then they in, they encourage these uh, determination sits, strong determination sits, which basically means don't move. You've settled into your posture. You've been there for a few days, and just from bell to bell. Be a rock. There's a lot of wisdom that can come from that. But you'll have to do it to find out the wisdom. (laughs) So in your home practice, you know, if you have uh, a nifty little insight timer on your iPhone, you could set it for the long bell and sit until the end of that bell. It's pretty cool. You can like change the resonation of each bell so it like resonates like longer. (laughs) So I think this is about what I have for uh, truthfulness and determination Working through the potomies. Let's see. I think it's back here. I'll end with a. pages away. This is a quote from the Buddha. Master yourself. Love yourself. Be awake. Today, tomorrow, always. First establish yourself in the way. Then teach others. And so defeat sorrow. To straighten the crooked, you must first do the harder thing. Straighten yourself. You are your only master. Who else? Subdue yourself and discover your master. I think that this points to these potomies. And I just love that you must first do the harder thing. Straighten yourself. Because we get so rushed into... Wanting to help others. And we haven't really traveled down the road long enough to what happens if there's a difficult question. You know. I remember when I was first wanting to teach, I really wanted to teach. It was like ego involved in it. And there was no teaching happening. You know, no one was no one was saying, Here, you should you should teach this. 
and then I, and then uh, I remember the, the the time, the moment when uh, I was encouraged to teach, and I got white, and there was a fear of I'm not worthy to teach. I'm not, you know, like that. It was it was interesting. It was an interesting moment, and that's when. Of course, it passed, and ego jumped back in, you know, because <laughs> it does. But I remember that moment because uh, it, there was a real honest, like, kind of, um, like, uh, humility that came in what it means to represent perfection, wisdom. A fully uh, unprotected um, heart, you know. Luckily, I could. I get to always say I'm not enlightened. You know? You'll hear me say from the Buddhist perspective a lot, because I'm not enlightened. Yet I have studied and trained and practiced for two decades with determination. Seeking truth. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.